P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. For almost a quarter of a century, developing economies built up their foreign currency reserves, trying to stave off another type of financial crisis, potential de- dramatic decline in their uh, economic trajectories. But now it seems like that trend is changing. I want to bring in Damien Sassauer, fixed income strategist here at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in our 1130 studio. Damien, you wrote this report. I thought it was fascinating. Can you explain why we've seen such a decline in foreign currency reserves in certain economies and just how big some of the declines have been. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Pim. Um, Well, look, um, foreign currency reserves are really used for three things, right? They're used to maintain a currency peg for fixed and or managed um, currency regimes such as, for example, China, which has, in fact, exhibited the greatest decline in reserves um, over the past two and a half years, I mean, from, I believe, uh, really 25% from $4 trillion to just under $3 trillion U.S. dollars now. So that's a pretty big, uh, pretty sharp decline. Um, but they are also used to support external trade. I mean, I think the big um, statistic that central banks like to look at is your currency reserves, your foreign currency reserves should be the equivalent of three months of import. But most importantly, they're used as a kind of a precautionary savings buffer during a balance of payments crisis, such as, you know, in the late 90s, we saw that in Asia. So those are really the three primary uses. And, you know, the way we look at here at BI is (laughs) declining currency reserves in EM just exposes them to a whole slew of new risk. And I think the emphasis now must kind of shift from long-term growth and um, current account health to more coverage ratios and short-term liquidity metrics, such as reserve ratios and short-term, short-term external debt. And, and that's what we focus on here in this report. Can you tell us the countries that are involved in this and perhaps just give a detail about each one? So from, I mean, from the, from the good side, you have countries such as Peru and the Philippines, which, are, um, which, which track rather well. I mean, their reserves are, I mean, in the case of Peru, nearly three times the IMF's um, reserve adequacy ratio. Same with the Philippines. I think it's two and a half times. So they get both gold stars, Peru and the Philippines. <laughs> That's correct. Who gets demerits? And now demerits. Um, well, Malaysia is probably first among uh, sort of the major EMs. You've also got South Africa, Turkey, and Kazakhstan. I mean, those four really kind of stand out to us as being below the IMF's reserve adequacy ratios. And China is right at the cusp. I mean, yeah. So hold on a second. You also have a statistic in here that one fifth of emerging market economies, at least those on record, have foreign currency reserves below the IMF reserve adequacy threshold. Are we heading toward another emerging markets crisis here? (laughs) So what we're looking at here is the IMF defines uh, the emerging markets in however way they do it. But, you know, 20 percent of what they they define as an emerging market are below that threshold. And, And these are countries, not only the majors, they can be Jamaica, Armenia, Pakistan, Tunisia the Dominican Republic. I mean, so there are quite a few of them. Many of those countries, however, do 
issue quite a bit of external U.S. dollar debt, and a lot of that debt is in some of the broad EM indices, such as the Bloomberg Barclays EM uh, hard currency aggregate index. Can we just head back to China for a second? You said that they were kind of on the cusp of really being in a risky zone with respect to their uh, capital adequacy requirements. What does this mean? I mean, does this basically mean that they can't continue to support their currency the way that they have been? Does it mean that they're going to have to hold back on pumping billions of dollars into their financial system? And what's the what's the consequence? Well, I mean, in, in China's case, right, they are using their currency to help. Well, they're using their currency reserves to help support their peg to the dollar. And, um, you know, this doesn't in any way, shape or form mean that they're not going to be able to continue to do that. I mean, they still have by far and away the largest reserves globally. Um, you know, the way the IMF calculates reserve adequacy is they take total exports, broad money supply, short term debt and other liabilities, which are really kind of lines with the IMF, et cetera. And they and they create this threshold. And look, that threshold is is sort of a soft threshold that's developed by the IMF to sort of guide expectations. But, you know, China's a huge economy. I mean, you know, it's 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 not going under anytime soon if you if that's where you're headed here. I'm just simply pointing out the fact that we have to begin looking at some of these emerging market nations through a bit of a different lens. Um, I can't decide whether to ask you whether the actual currency holdings are a big deal, like, you know, whether they're holding dollars or euros. But you're telling me this is basically something that is endemic to each individual country. So they have their own issues. That's why this is happening. In that case, I want to know what can we buy in uh, South Africa or in Malaysia or in Turkey uh, or get ready to buy? Because, yeah. you know, if smart money goes where no one else wants yeah. to go. Yeah, I know. I mean, the last time we were here, Pim, we talked about Turkey maybe being. Yeah. You know, uh, fundamentally undervalued on a number of different metrics. I, I mean, mean, you know, whatever the political turmoil is, or whatever the you know news headlines are, it is a dynamic, industrializing economy um, that builds you know automobiles, trucks, totally. and has an incredible uh, retail sector. Sure, sure. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, Turkey, we you know, their financial sector issues. I mean, it's one of the most, one of the largest sectors in emerging markets in terms of its issuance of U.S. dollar debt. Um, and there are a number of banks there that we can highlight for you that have highlighted another, you know, kind of. Um, give me, give me one, that. give me one a Turkish bank. Well, you've got Guarantee, you've got Akbank, you've got Yapikredi. I mean, you've got quite a few there that are, you know, beginning to, you know, perhaps look a little bit interesting on that metric. But you know, I think what we're really talking about here is. Uh, this is really supposed to be a sovereign risk sort right. of metric. So looking at the sovereign risk, the actual, you know, debt from Turkey itself or from Kazakhstan itself, from Malaysia, I mean, that's kind of what you're looking at now in the case of Malaysia, you're looking at Sukuk bonds, which is a whole different animal, um, which I'm not about to get into right now. Um, in South Africa, they, you know, the country does issue a lot of, um, you know, sovereign debt in U.S. dollar yeah. and uh, euro as well. Um, and but you've you also, also got buy... Sassel, you've got ESCOM, which are Big... what I like to call quasi-sovereign type institutions. We got to leave it there. Oh, Damien Sassauer, great <laughs> Great stuff. Fixed income strategist, Bloomberg Intelligence. And just go to BI Go on the Bloomberg to check out all of Damien's work. You gotta you gotta read this to be up to date. This is Bloomberg.
Another day, another high for U.S. stocks. Can this last? We're going to take a deep dive into both the technicals with Jeff Weiss, Chief Technical Analyst at Clearview Trading Advisors, as well as the fundamentals with Yelena Shulgetyeva, Senior U.S. Economist here at Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Jeff, I want to start with you. Hi, Lisa. Uh, hi. Thank you for so much for joining us. Honored. So, given that some of the technical indicators that you look at, first of all, what are the most uh, reliable ones, and what are they saying about the current run up in stocks? Well, as reliable as an indicator is, Lisa, I'm always looking at the downside and what could go wrong. Because in the stock Great. market, You're you could be my right. Language. Right, okay. you could be right nine out of ten times, and on the tenth time, if if uh, you don't know what to do, it could obliterate the other nine times. You're right. I still think the bulls have it. I still think we're in a, in a primary bull trend. Uh, in fact, we actually, one of your charts over there that I gave you shows that for three Friday closes in a row, the broad-based Dow Jones total uh, U.S. stock market index has closed above a fairly significant trend line dating back quite a ways. In addition, that's been confirmed by the S&P as well as other Indicator. So to me, not even going into the new multi-year highs in the weekly advanced decline line of the big board and the new highs in the daily advanced decline line, it is still, to me, a bull until proven otherwise. And that's not going to be because of some news. It's going to be because of the action of the market itself. Okay, so then let's take a look at the fundamentals. Yelena, are we seeing economic data to support this bullish outlook that is uh, sort of being uh, shown by the technicals? What we see in the economic data, and uh, we are looking at different indicators, we only see a pickup in survey indicators so far. So if you look at uh, a Bloomberg function, ECSU, for example, uh, you will see that uh, the the biggest upward surprises are coming from the survey and business cycle indicators. Everything else is pretty much flat. So this week, we're going to see a bunch of different indicators from retail sales to uh, industrial production. And they're all like expected to be Okay, but not nothing like uh, a big upward uh, surprise is expected. So uh, to me, it looks like uh, we we are okay, but it's still a sluggish recovery. It's still uh, a sluggish growth. Jeff Weiss. <clears throat> Hi, Pim. Excuse me. I, I wanted to also just mention and congratulate you on your new book. It's called Relationship Investing, Stock Market Therapy for Your Money. And boy, do is that you know if anything needs therapy now, it's it's everybody's money. And you have been noted as someone that is able to combine both the art and the science of market analysis. And having uh, said that, I want to just have you speak you. a little bit about one of the things you described that people ought to spend the lion's share of their time on the analytical portion of the investment process, and not on trading fees. We keep hearing all about fees, you know, don't spend money on fees. Tell us why this is something that you've learned. Well, to me, um, you know, I, I, I always say that's kind of like having a bad dinner, but bragging about the uh, the mint at the at the end of the uh, the meal, Pim. Uh, to me, again, you want to obviously get you know as competent advice as possible, consistent with very reasonable fees. But to me, it's all about where do you buy, where do you sell, getting the primary trend right, riding it for all it's worth, and then having someone or some approach that will give you a discipline 
to stop a cut from becoming a hemorrhage, from becoming a financial amputation. Because I lived through 1973, 1974, and I've seen the horrific toll something like that could inflict. And that's one of the motivating reasons I wrote this book, to try and help people avoid some of those mistakes. Well, Jeff, so pair what Yelena was talking about with your bullish sentiment. I'm, I'm struggling to sort of understand the sort of feeling that the that stocks can just keep on hitting new highs day after day after day, when as Yelena said, we're not really seeing the justification for that in fundamental data. Yes, that could change, but so far we're not seeing it. Well, Lisa, in technical jargon, if you wait very often, not always, nothing's always, but if you wait for the underlying background or fundamentals to justify why a stock market has moved, I don't know what someone's going to be paying for that privilege. Is it an S&P 2450? Is it an S&P 2520? I don't know. I can tell you this, though. Um, in my opinion, the 2230 to 2235 area is a daily closing area I'd watch, and that's 4% below where we are now. That, to me, is the area to watch. All right, so basically, Jeff, you're saying that the economic data is a lagging indicator. Yelena, is there any economic data point that you look at that you do not think is a lagging indicator? Well, uh, I think what we should look, uh, and uh, that is probably going to be even more important than economic data, is uh, what uh, Chair Yellen is going to tell us tomorrow. And uh, that could be a little bit forward-looking, right? So uh, we think that uh, she will continue to be on a dovish side. Uh, she's going to be uh, herself, no, no hawkish signs from her. Uh, uh, probably the uh, testimony itself will not contain any clues. Uh, as a, about the timing of the next rate hike, but she will probably be asked about it. And uh, I don't think she's going to rule out March. Uh, she's probably going to say, oh, it's a live meeting. Every meeting is a live meeting. But uh, uh, we don't think that uh, that really means that they will hike in March. Uh, still, uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence Economics, we think that... Uh, the tightening will be gradual, only two rate hikes this year, June and at the end of the year. So uh, the outlook for the Fed is still kind of the same, uh, gradual tightening this year and uh, no, no big surprises. Quick one to you, Jeff Weiss. Yes, Imagine that you've got the scenario that you sat out all of this move higher in stocks. Now you're wondering, was that a mistake? Should I admit it to myself and get in or do I just you know, keep my counsel. If it were my money and I basically write that book from, from me, what would I do if your money, the reader's money, were my money? Yes, I think it's a bull trend. Um, Admit the mistake. Otherwise, uh, yeah, a mistake or, you know, to me, a mistake is not selling a stock on the way down when you should and selling it at the market and trying to get the extra 10 cents on the upside and risking $25 on the downside. Uh, But yes, I I think we are in a bull trend. Uh, I think, you know, Miss Yellen is welcome to come over my home, but there will be no talk about, you know, economic statistics there. We We'll be looking at uh, we will be looking at stock charts. And again, I was an economics major. It's just that I don't have an ability to look at reams, as I note in the book, of fundamental data and economic analysis, and have any idea what that portends for me in terms of the stock market. So, to me, if I want to look at a stock, I look at the stock. Makes that to sense. me is the purest form of analysis. And thanks for being with us and sharing it. Thank you, Lisa Elena. 
Chief Technical Analyst, Clearview Trading Advisors. He's the author of the new book, Relationship Investing. Our thanks also to Yelena Shulietova, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. The musical artist Adele opened the 59th annual Grammy Awards by singing the uh, well her rendition of the hit song "Hello," and she went home the big winner. Uh, and now Grammys. Pim Fox is going to sing it for us. Uh, in your dreams. Uh, yeah, perhaps, or nightmare. Um, you know, Adele took home five awards, and also that she had that uh, tribute to uh, George Michael. And yes, this is going somewhere. But, you know, the other album that uh, was really in competition was from Beyonce, and uh, that was the, the Lemonade album. But, you know, there was one winner, no matter who wins, and that was a gentleman named Rob Stringer. And here to tell us who is Rob Stringer, we've got our own Lucas Shaw, Bloomberg Entertainment reporter. Uh, Lucas, is that enough of a setup? <laughs> yeah, it is. So Rob Stringer uh, is the head of Columbia Records, which is, I believe, the oldest functioning record label in the United States. Uh, it's been around since the, the late 19th century. Of course, had a different name back then. Uh, and in, and over the years, they've worked with David Bowie, who won big last night. They've worked with Bruce Springsteen, worked with Bob Dylan. And over the past 10 or 15 years, uh, their biggest two acts, you'd, you'd say, have been Adele and, and Beyonce. They've actually worked with Beyonce since she was in the girl group Destiny's Child. And, and Rob Stringer in April will go from being the head of Columbia Records to being the head of all of Sony Music, which is the second biggest record label in the world. How common is this for one record label to uh, have two of the most celebrated artists at the Grammy Awards? It is common for a record label group like Universal or Sony or Warner uh, to, to really dominate. There was, I forget, I think a couple of years ago, Universal had almost all of the major nominees, and that is the, the biggest record label group. But to have one label within the group is, is less common. Usually you, you have, you know, it, it's split amongst three or four or five in any one category. So Rob Stringer obviously made some really good uh, selections with his signing of Adele and Beyonce. Does this translate into green into profits, into saving the music industry that's being eaten away by online streaming music services? More than anything, I think it provides stability. Uh, so if you are trying to figure out where your next hit is going to come from or where the sales are going to come from, uh, you, you can rest easy knowing that you're relying on Beyonce and Adele because every time those acts release an album, it's going to sell. You know, Adele took the unusual step uh, with with her latest release, 25, of not making it available on any streaming services the first couple weeks, and she, lo and behold, she went on to set a record. Now, the money uh, for first week sales, now, the money from streaming services is is rising, 
but but what's different is that you tend to have a longer tail with it because people will stream your album over a long period of time. You can kind of keep making money longer after it's released than you might have otherwise. You don't get as much of that kind of first week pop. You get a lot of streams, but even if you get you know a hundred million streams in a week, you're not going to make a ton of money. So if you have these artists like Adele or Beyonce who can balance that interest on streaming with still being able to move full albums, you're in a pretty good position. Hey, hey Lucas, have the record companies missed another digital revolution? I mean, they missed the online streaming. I mean, that's why we talk about Spotify, Pandora, uh, Amazon, Apple, and so on. They missed that. But uh, I understand that the big thing on social media last night uh, for the Grammys was uh, Beyonce and it yeah. was her performance and her uh, costume and so on. That lit up the social media world. Does the record, do yeah. the record companies figure out how to make money out of that? Because Facebook and Snapchat certainly think they do. Uh, the only way that the record companies would make money from that would be more people streaming or buying her album, which will invariably happen because you just get so much attention from it. People are going to wake up today and they're going to want to listen to Lemonade. The, the challenge with that is that Beyonce has limited where her album is even more than Adele. So though Adele is now available on Spotify and Apple Music and these other places, Beyonce, you either buy it or you, you stream it on Tidal, which is her husband Jay-Z's service. You know, But you, you raise a good point, which is that there are all these ways, all these touch points for for music and and really for for more broadly for entertainment, whether it's on Facebook or Snapchat or Twitter or YouTube. And the music industry has really struggled to, with how it can kind of effectively monetize that. Because unlike with a movie, where you can't really replicate the mo- the experience of a movie in like a you know a brief Facebook post, you can hear a song in all of these different avenues. And so they've really tried to extract more money from them and are in the process right now of, of negotiating with Facebook to try and figure out how they make money off of Facebook. Uh, but it's, it's a tough balance because these tech companies feel like as long as they're not just completely ripping a full song, uh, it's, it's nice exposure for these artists to monetize their works in, in other ways. Lucas, how irrelevant are the Grammys at this point to the major labels just because <laughs> it's not giving them any more money necessarily, not directly? Right. Um, you know, it's just an opportunity to, to thump your chest and for, say you're, you're the best for a little while. I mean, I think it's not... <laughs> Who doesn't want a reason to do that, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they the, took a 16 a really share, I, right? A 16 share on in the overnights for Nielsen. So that was like the same as it was last year. Yeah, which was which was down. From, down, yeah. Down past. like... Look, yeah, right. Like all award shows, they, they mattered most uh, kind of... They seem to matter most for that that baby boomer generation and a little bit after it. You know, they're really popular throughout the the seventies, eighties, nineties. You have a, a a new generation. old people. That's what you're saying. I know, Lucas. Well, no, <laughs> no, because I'm unusual. I actually like I like the Oscars. I'm not a huge fan of watching some of the others. The Grammys are kind of fun, but you do have a whole generation of young people for whom these don't really matter, especially because they're not awarding the artists that are most relevant to them. That's one area where the Grammys actually fare a little better because the Grammys do tend to nominate the most popular artists and especially those who appeal to, to younger listeners. I mean, young people love Beyonce, love uh, Chance the Rapper, who won a bunch of awards last night. The Oscars, and, and to a lesser extent the Emmys, which award uh, the best in TV, 
tend to skew to this to de- definitely to an older, wealthier viewer. Uh, so I have more faith in the the Grammys maintaining their credibility. The problem with the Grammys is that they always give the awards to kind of the white pop act. So there was a, a, a lot of chatter last night about how for the past five years you've had a, a white pop star beating what many would say was a more deserving artist in, in R&B or in rap. Kendrick Lamar has lost, Beyonce's lost a couple times, and at some point the Record Academy is going to have to come to grips with that. Did you have a party last night while you watched it? No? Uh, I was in the back room at the show. I then attempted to go to one of the labels after parties, and the, the wait outside was so bad that I went. <laughs> Lucas Shaw, Bloomberg News, thank you so much for joining us. Brian Chapata is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. He reports on bonds for Bloomberg News and wrote a story that published today about uh, just how much selling there has been by China and Japan uh, in the past few months. And, you know, Brian, first, I just want to get a sense from you. How much of this selling is being driven by concerns about the new U.S. president and how much is being driven by concerns at home where these nations need to drum up money to support their economies. Yeah, it's a little bit of both in the sense that, you know, you got uh, Donald Trump is the new president. And of course, the markets are reacting to this through the reflation trade. Uh, Yields jumped up uh, quite a bit right in November after he got elected. And, you know, if you're a Japanese investor, uh, you don't like to see those losses on your books when you have uh, the Bank of Japan essentially controlling interest rates and, you know, you're just getting a flat return there. So uh, for some of these investors, it seems like it's a lot easier to just stay home. You know, you have, you know, easy money policy, whereas in the U.S., uh, the idea that Trump's fiscal policy is going to spur growth is going to spur, you know, the Federal Reserve into action, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got rising, rising interest rates. Um, hasn't really played out so far this year. Uh, yields are still mostly flat in the Treasury market, but the prospect that they could go higher is definitely a concern. So, who's going to get burned if this trade doesn't work out the way you describe? In other words, if it turns out that they're going to go back in and buy U.S. Treasuries, who's going to get burned? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that if they go back and buy Treasuries, I think everyone is going to be happy <laughs> um, because yields will fall and there'll be a persistent amount of demand. But it's really the uh, the foreign flows uh, are something that people are really keeping an eye on because you know, you get, J- Japan has one point one trillion dollars of Treasury holdings. Uh, China has another trillion. Uh, it's a $13.9 trillion market. And, and declining. And right declining. with China, right? I mean, particularly. Yes. China is going, has, they're, you know, they're holding. It was like have, $4 trillion not down. too long ago. Right. It was, it, it was very high, um, but it's gone down quite a bit. Uh, Fed's still a large holder, uh, but even they're talking about, you know, potential non-reinvestment of their balance sheet as well. So uh, this pairing back of demand uh, in the treasury market is definitely something that uh, is giving some investors pause. Right. Well, and you were saying that that people would be happy if they stopped selling or they came back. But Dave, one one people one group that would not be happy would be the banks. Uh, you see that that increasingly banks are linked to the hip with U.S. Treasury yields in a way that I mean, have they ever been this connected before? 
Well, you'd have to go back and, and run the analysis to figure it out. It's clear, though, I mean, you look at the past several months, that the, the day-to-day kind of moves are, are definitely having some effect. And it's understandable, I mean, with the financial companies, you really have the concern about their ability to make money because, after all, it depends on what they can earn on their loans, their investments, and what they pay out to their depositors, what they call the net interest margin. And for a lot of these banks, we've seen it narrow the last uh, few years in this environment of low interest rates. So, you you know, the idea that, you know, maybe bond yields go up and, and loan rates go with them, you, you can understand why there has been this focus with the financial stocks. And actually today, the financials are the best performers among the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500. So it's definitely playing out as we speak. Well, I was just looking at the shares of Goldman Sachs. Uh, they are the biggest mover in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, I believe, uh, up more than one and a half percent. You know, I have to wonder, Brian, going back to your story, so we, as you mentioned, we have seen yields pretty flat, if not down this year from where they were uh, from the peaks in December. Who's coming in and buying them? Why is there or where is this support coming from? Well, I mean, at a certain point, you have to realize that the whole idea behind secular stagnation and demographics, um, all those things are still here, (laughs) even though there's a lot of focus on Donald Trump and potentially being a game changer. I mean, ultimately, a lot of these structural elements uh, in the economy are still in play. And, you know, a 2.5 percent on the 10 year Treasury. I mean, that's something that we hadn't really seen since 2014. So, you know, a lot of a lot of investors are saying, you know, it's time to start, you know, putting some money back to work here, uh, even if they are still being uh, quite cautious. Nothing in, like in having people follow uh, a move uh, uh, into uh, record territory, right? right? Nothing, nothing like that. Thanks very much. Uh, Brian Chapata is our bond reporter for a Bloomberg. A great story uh, on the Bloomberg about uh, the sale off in treasuries. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.